0: I want to start out this morning with a, with a story, a story that I heard uh, on the news a little while ago and it was this experiment that was done earlier in the year, an experiment that was done by the Washington Post in the States. In Washington DC there is a massive underground subway system and tens of thousands of people uh, every day commute to work on the subways and so you have these huge subway stations around the city. And often what will happen is because there's such high pedestrian traffic in these subway stations, buskers will set themselves up. These street musicians that will just put out a hat and try and make a couple of bucks. So the Washington Post tried this interesting experiment. They got hold of a guy named Joshua Bell. You may have heard of him. He's recently been acclaimed the top classical musician in North America. Just a phenomenal guy who regularly fills concert halls around the world. Classical violinist. They got Joshua Bell, and they set him up as a busker in one of the main DC subway stations. So he turns up, April the 12th, about 7.15 in the morning, not dressed in a tuxedo, but dressed just in jeans and a t-shirt and a baseball cap, positions himself next to a pole, puts out a hat, and he starts busking. Now you need to know as well, with Joshua Bell, he's not just playing any old violin. He's playing a hand-crafted Stradivarius violin with a price tag of about $3.5 million. <laughs> one of the finest musical instruments in the world. And for 45 minutes Joseph Bell stands in a DC subway station dressed just as a, as a street busker and plays some of the finest and some of the most technically challenging musical works that have ever been composed. 45 minutes. Now what do you think happened? 1,097 people passed him, and seven stopped for more than a minute. 27 people gave him money, and at the end of that 45-minute period, he walked away with the grand total of (laughs) $32.17. 45 minutes of busking. One person recognized Joshua Bell. Her name was Stacy Furukawa, and she made this comment. She said, it was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping, and not even looking. And some were flipping quarters at him. That's 25 cents. Quarters. I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, "Oh my gosh, what kind of a city do I live in that this could happen?" It's a fascinating little story, isn't it? It just kind of—it's such an insight into the way in which a lot of the time you can—we can miss brilliance that's right in front of us. The way in which you and I can be so unaware of beauty that is sometimes staring us in the face and is all around us. And I think it's a parable in many ways on our lives and on the things that we can so easily miss out on. And I wonder as we start out this book series on Hebrews whether that tells us something about the way you and I can sometimes be in our perceptions of who Jesus is, our perception of who God is. Is it possible that we are so caught up in our own familiar little understanding, our own little boxed-in world in terms of who we think God is, who we think Jesus is, that we sometimes can be guilty of failing to hear the symphony that is resonating from the pages of Scripture itself concerning the person of Jesus. Is it possible that you and I have got so used to the old Sunday school lines about Jesus, the old things that people like me have stood up and told you all your life, just the trite old lines. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Yes, but what what does that mean? And sometimes the depth and the richness of who Jesus is gets lost because we're not really soaking up the true beauty of who our Savior honestly is. And at the beginning of this book of Hebrews, this is kind of where Hebrews starts. It's like the author picks up at the beginning of chapter 1 the Stradivarius violin, and he just begins playing these high notes, These high, clear notes about Christ, about Jesus, the Son of God. Some of the highest notes that you'll find in the New Testament, in all of the Scriptures. Some of the highest and loftiest theology that there is about the person of Jesus Christ. And if you and I want to follow this Jesus, if you and I want to live our lives according to His Word and His will, then we need to stand still and allow these words, allow this symphony to stop us dead in our tracks and lift our eyes up and just listen. Just listen to the symphony that is Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to do today with you is just walk through, we're only biting off today, three verses. Just three verses. Now you may be doing some mental arithmetic and wondering how long it's going to take us to get through the book of Hebrews if we just do three verses every week. That's going to be like 15 years. We'll be on chapter 13. We are going to pick up the pace But this is like a little prelude to the whole thing and and a a foretaste of so much of what's coming down the track that it just sets up the argument so well. I just want to spend this time this morning just soaking up this portrait, this symphony of who Jesus is. So if you have a Bible, flick open to Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven." So really where the author is starting out here is with some pretty common ground. If you were here last week and you remember talking a bit about who these people were that he's writing to, you'll remember that they can all agree on this first little part, can't they? God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, to our forefathers through the prophets in the former days. And of course the audience, this community of Jewish Christians in Rome, this was part of the problem for them, is that they were hung up on the, last, on the past days. They were hung up on the prophets. They were all about the glory days. They were all about the good old days when God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. They were all about the law. They were all about Judaism. They were all about their former way of life. And the author says, yes, it's true. God spoke to our ancestors through these prophets in the past. These men of God whom God would would use as His spokespeople, His mouthpiece to communicate His message to the nation of Israel and other nations. But he says the nature of that communication was always a bit piecemeal. It was at various times and it was at various ways. God never revealed His whole plan to any one prophet. Isaiah didn't have the whole picture. Jeremiah didn't have the whole picture. Ezekiel, Habakkuk, these guys, they had a piece of it, didn't they? They all saw glimpses of what God was intending to do and what He was doing now, and they would prophesy in accordance with what God had specifically revealed to them. But it was a bit over here and it was a bit over there, and none of them brought it together until now. And the author says, in contrast, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus stands at the end of this long and proud tradition in the Old Testament of prophets who spoke the Word of God. He is the consummate prophet. It's not that God's conversation with humanity has dwindled since the end of the Old Testament, since the end of those prophets of old. It has crescendoed in Jesus. This is what the author is trying to get across. God's conversation with humanity has risen to its climax with Jesus, the prophet. He's the last in this tradition. It's sort of, you know, Zechariah, Malachi, Jesus. And that's a bit unusual for us, isn't it, to think of Jesus as a prophet? Because usually we're stuck in these categories of Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And while that's very true, there are other ways, the author is showing us, of glimpsing the glory and the majesty of who Jesus is. One of them is to think about Jesus as a prophet, as the vehicle through which God spoke. And what makes Jesus such a superior prophet to all these others? Well, He's the Son. He's the Son of God. And so His very proximity to God is so intimate. He enjoys such intimate fellowship with the Father that, of course, He's going to be the perfect vehicle for God to communicate His message to humanity. To humanity. He's going to be the perfect conduit For God's word to come from heaven to earth because it's not coming through a broken, fallen human messenger anymore. It's coming through the very Son of God. So Jesus is the medium of God's communication to us. And the question then becomes if Jesus really is this great prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, what is it that God said through him? If Jesus is a mouthpiece to us, what's God trying to say? What's the message? I think this comes through in the next couple of phrases in verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Now think about this. If Jesus is the heir of all things, what's an heir? Someone who's going to get an inheritance, right? Someone who's eventually going to be given something. Eventually something's going to come into his possession. And what is it that Jesus is heir of? Two words, all things. So what we're seeing here is that eventually Jesus is going to have possession of all things. At the end of history when God finally pulls the curtain on human history and the dust settles, we will see Jesus, the Son of God, having direct authority and direct reign and rule and possession of all things, the entire created order. Now where does that place Jesus in the scheme of history? Right at the end. Jesus occupies this climactic point of the end of history where one day all things will be brought in subjection to the Son of God. Everything will be summed up under His feet. And then look at this next phrase, through whom also He made the universe. Here's a really hard question. When was the universe made? At the beginning. So where does this place Jesus? At the beginning of time. You see what's happening here? Do you see the picture that's being created? The author is essentially telling us in these two phrases, Jesus is the end of history and he is also the beginning. So where you have these old prophets in the Old Testament who each had a part of God's picture for humanity and for history and could see part of what he was doing and glimpses of his plan, now Jesus has come as the, as the prophet par excellence and he has revealed to us the entire thing. That he has play, God has placed him as the alpha, and the Omega, and God's entire plan for all of human history is now out on the table. God's laid His cards down for all of us to see. He's not keeping secrets anymore. Most importantly, He's revealed to us the last chapter, that all things are one day going to be brought under the subjection of Jesus, the Son of God. That's where it's all heading. And so what Jesus the prophet is telling us is that suddenly history has a goal. It has a destination. That might seem like like just the obvious sort of a statement to make for us but think of the way this cuts right across the greek view of time where things are just cyclical just going round and round on a meaningless treadmill this is the kind of the world in which these uh, readers would have lived that everything that has been will be again and everything that is will one day be and then it just goes round and round and we're stuck in the cycle of meaninglessness history is not actually going anywhere and with jesus the prophet god has cut through all of that and he has said no now history has a destination it is moving sequentially toward an inevitable goal that cannot be stopped, an irreversible series of events that will culminate one day with the summing up of all things, everything being handed over directly to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. See friends, that's not just a big picture, abstract kind of theory. This has power in our lives today. Can you see how this might make sense of events in the present? Can you see how this might make sense of when we are suffering, when we are going through difficulty and hardship, and when we see it around us, as we did this week with the Virginia Tech shooting, when you see death, when you see suffering, how do we interpret that as Christians? How do we give a coherent explanation for that? In view of Hebrews 1, what we're learning is that those things are essentially the cries of resistance by a sinful and fallen world to its inevitable destiny of being brought under the authority of Jesus Christ. This is an example of something that has not yet been made subject to Christ because we live between the ages, between the time that Christ has been appointed heir of all things and the time when he directly assumes that rule and reign at the end of history when God finally draws everything to a close. And you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy that is to be made subject to the Son of God at the end of time is what? Death. He describes death as the final enemy. So even though death in the present still has some power, even though it still has some freedom to roam, and it plagues and haunts every one of us, we know that its days are numbered. We know that this is not simply a chaotic uh, history that has no meaning and no end, we know that eventually everything will be brought under the control of Jesus Christ. And when we don't see that in the present, we know that it is only the fleeting resistance of a world that is heading in that direction, and God will bring that to pass, and we have that absolute certainty. So when we suffer, when we face hardships and trials of many kinds, What we need to be able to do is return to the words of Jesus the prophet, the word that God spoke through Jesus. It's not necessarily about having an audible word from God today in our lives and discerning His voice right at this moment. It's about leaning back on the word God has already spoken through Jesus, that history now has meaning, and within that, your life has meaning and my life has meaning because we can see where it's all heading. God said, this is my program, this is my agenda, I'm moving all things toward the summing up in Jesus Christ, and our responsibility now is not to ask God, what are you saying, God, what are you thinking, God, what are you doing, but to get on board with what He's already told us He is doing until the end of time, and bring our lives under subjection to the Son, just as all things one day will be. Does that make sense? So Jesus is the prophet, and there's more than that, because look in verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I want to just pick up on this phrase here, the exact representation of his being. The the phrase in English, exact representation, is a translation of a Greek word, the Greek word character, which sounds identical to our English word character, and yet it means something slightly differently. In the ancient world, this word character was used for the engraving on a coin, on a Roman coin. I think we've got a picture of one of those up on screen a coin that would circulate with the picture of Caesar on it and some words along the lines of Caesar is king, Caesar is lord, something like this. And the emperor would commission his royal portrait to be engraved on a stamp by the royal engraver who would then through this process of, of hot and soft metal stamp this engraving onto a coin and the resulting impression would be the character. It's what was called the character the exact impression so the coin would give the exact impression of the emperor of the royal figure so can you see what the author might be telling us by setting Jesus up as the exact representation the character of God in this wonderfully subversive way what we're being told here is that Jesus is now the rightful king not Caesar nor any other human dignitary, Jesus has this power and Jesus outranks any other head of state that you can imagine. You think of how this would have gone down in the first century in the midst of persecution. Just the guts you'd have had to have to make this and the, the use of the word character it may not seem as obvious to us but the use of this word in, in that royal context of coinage would have been an unmistakable metaphor to these guys. If you're calling Jesus the character you're basically calling him king. Because you're saying that now it's his portrait essentially like his portrait on the coin and not Caesar. Jesus has the claim to kingship. But yet God hasn't revealed himself to us through a coin, the author says. He's revealed himself to us through what? His son. There's a wonderful quote that I came across in Tom Wright's commentary. It is as though the exact imprint of the Father's very nature and glory has been reproduced in the soft metal of the son's human nature. That's reason enough to go and buy that commentary right there this exact representation of the Father, Jesus reveals to us precisely what God is like. To see the Son is to see the Father. He has the perfect resemblance, the exact impression of God Himself. And because He is the perfect impression of the King of Kings, Jesus Himself, takes that rightful claim to kingship. He is the one who is upholding all things by his powerful word. And so the question becomes what type of king is he? What type of king is this? He doesn't seem to be like Caesar who remains aloof and indifferent from his people, who rules with an iron fist from on high. This king has condescended himself to come down with us. This king has taken on human flesh and more than that a human nature. He has entered into the full experience of being human. This is the great paradox, friends, of Jesus' kingship, that he outranks any human dignitary, he outranks any human diplomat, any head of state that you can call to mind. Jesus is infinitely superior to that king, and yet he dwells with us in a proximity and in an intimacy that we will never experience with anyone else. He calls us friend, and He comes down to be with us and inhabit our very bodies by His Spirit. Jesus is the greatest King, and yet He is the King of our own lives, the King of our own heart, and He gives meaning and purpose to us. And through this, God is saying to us, it's not just that I've set history up to culminate all things in Jesus Christ one day. I'm going to walk with you along the way. I'm the type of King that has come to earth. I am Emmanuel, God with us. And in Jesus Christ, we have the very presence of God with us in our heart, helping us move toward the destiny that God has appointed for us. This is the kingship of Jesus. He is not only the king, he is our king. And shouldn't this give us a tremendous sense of peace in the midst of our lives as we wonder where history is heading and we wonder where it's all going to be worked out, that sense that the God who breathed life into darkness, the God who flung stars into space and separated light from dark, would be with us and commune with us and dwell with us even in our struggles, even when it's really hard and we just can't see the way. And maybe some of you are right in this position this morning of just feeling like you're in this blackness, this fog that you just can't see your way out of. Can you see how understanding Jesus as your king and as your prophet can begin to breathe meaning into those sorts of dark situations? begin to give you that peace that he truly is in control. He's in control. He's got his hand on it. He's got his hand on our lives. He's got his hand on our church. He's upholding and sustaining all things right now by his powerful word. There's a tremendous freedom in that, isn't there? You sort of feel the weight lifting off your shoulders. God's in control. Jesus the king has got it all in his hands and even when it seems exactly the opposite, we know that he's working all things out according to his glorious purpose and we can just rest in that and we can find freedom and grace within that. It's a liberating truth to know Jesus as our king. And there's a final truth in here. Jesus is not only prophet and he's not only king. He's one other thing. See if you can pick it here at the end of verse 3. After he'd provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. My my hope is that by the time we finish this series in Hebrews, whenever you see a phrase like this, something that talks about providing purification for sins or atoning for sins, you will think of one word. Anyone want to guess it? Not saviour? No. Starts with P. Priest. There is one person in the old testament that can make purification for sins there is one person who can atone for sins and it is the priest and as soon as you see any language like this automatically our minds must think not like a catholic priest as they exist today but in the context of the old testament and the sacrificial system the priest alone can make purification for sins and atoning for sins is the primary role of the priest that is more that they have a few roles, but more than anything else, that's what they exist to do. So immediately, for a Jew to read this, they're going to associate Jesus as a priest. And this is a theme that is developed more than any other through the Book of Hebrews: Jesus as our priest, Jesus as our high priest. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today because it's once we get into chapters five onwards, this is just going to all come out and it's going to be unpacked so hugely. But let me draw your attention to one thing: Jesus has provided purification for our sins, but then look at this, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Don't gloss over that too fast. There's a huge amount of significance in this. What is the significance of Jesus having sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven? Flick over for just a second to Hebrews chapter 10. There's a verse here that starts to bring some clarity. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. Day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see that key word in there? Day after day each priest stands. The Levitical priests when they worked in the temple, if they were in uniform so to speak and and actually clocked in as a priest, they're standing to make make offerings on the altar, to provide purification for sins, all of these things. It's always standing. No one just sort of goes and grabs a seat and sits down and takes a smoko break. Because the symbolism here is that you are constantly working to make atonement for the sins of the people. And even the high priest, even when he went into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, and made atonement for the sins of the people, he would go, and go home at the end of the day and and check his calendar on the wall and sure enough he would see next year same date same time we're gonna do it all over again because the job of making sacrifice for sins was never done it never came to an end and the priests would stand and minister continually representing the fact that this was an ongoing process so what's the significance then of the author right here can you see the beauty in this statement jesus provided purification for sins and then what did he do he sat down isn't that great he sat down What does that tell us friends about the way in which our sin has been dealt with it's finished it's over closure jesus made a point of sitting down after he had offered the sin sacrifice to god before his very throne he then sat down at god's right hand giving us the unmistakable message that your sin and my sin and all of the wrongdoings in our life is absolutely fully finally and completely gone and done away with isn't that a great message isn't that something that we need to hold on to in those times when you feel like God could never forgive me for this you know and and look I feel like this my personality is I'm a melancholic personality so often when I'm down I find it hard to get up again you know and it's just hard getting out of that rut where you sometimes just struggle to feel God's forgiveness when you really mess up and it's like oh just God's just got to be so angry he's got to be so gutted with me there is a sense friends in which we need to be drawn back to this verse time and time again and remind ourselves that Jesus is still sitting down. He's sitting down. Just when you think he's gotten up, maybe he's gotten up. You know, maybe my sin's too big. Maybe he's had to stand up because this one just has to, you know, this is just going to take a bit more work. Or this one he's like, nah, too big for me. No, he's still sitting down. And it's almost a discipline that is worth getting into. I think it's such a powerful image, this one of Jesus sitting down, that when we feel like I just cannot believe that God has honestly forgiven me, just remember Jesus is sitting down, it's done. And if there was any doubt about it, he'd be on his feet, but he's not, he's sitting down. Your sin and my sin is dealt with friends. We are absolutely and completely free. I don't know how to use any more adjectives to describe it to you. This is just the finality of Christ's work on the cross. And we need to constantly refresh ourselves because I think it's not just a case of getting this in our minds. It's something that has to invade our hearts, doesn't it? It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to live it. We need to soak ourselves in these scriptures that remind us of what Christ has done for us and then live out of the freedom of that, to be able to come to God and say, Father, I'm completely unworthy. There is no way that I deserve to have this relationship with you. I don't even deserve to be living right now in view of the person that I've been. And yet you, through Jesus Christ, have completely cleansed me. You have completely forgiven me. Not just one time a year, but once for all. The sacrifice of Christ is enough. We're going to unpack this even more as we go through the book of Hebrews. But at this early stage, just let this truth soak in as the author sets up something that he's going to develop much more fully later on. Are you beginning to hear the symphony that's coming out? The symphony of Jesus. That this figure, who was a man in time and space, and yet also the Son of God, has brought together the three great Old Testament offices of prophet, king, and priest in one person one saviour they are no longer separate people from separate tribes performing separate functions they are one person and one saviour and it's imperative for us to hold on to the reality that Jesus is not only a prophet and a king and a priest he is our prophet king and priest that we talk every day with the one who has spoken meaning into history and have an intimate relationship with the greatest prophet who has ever walked and spoken on behalf of God. That we commune and dine every day with a king that outranks any human dignitary who will ever live, any head of state, and yet we get to sit around his table of fellowship and dwell with him and walk with him and relate to him as his children. And we have the assurance that the greatest high priest has interceded on behalf of us personally, come down, atoned for our sins, and presented that to the Father on our behalf, and now mediates our relationship with God in heaven, that we no longer need a human mediator or intercessor, and we certainly have no, no more need of atonement and sacrifices to be made, because we have one who hears our confession, who pardons our sin, and who has atoned for us fully. This is something in which we need to find freedom, friends, and allow to motivate us to, to out of an incredible gratitude for what God has done, live in the fullness and the richness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?